attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week's guests on the podcast, Chef Kyle and his wife, Grace. That is right. We've got the chef in the house. And his wife, uh, talking about some classic stories of camp and some classic stories about themselves. We get to the bottom of some of the great mysteries of the kitchen of Camp Ojibwa, as well as some of the great mysteries of the chef himself. Before we get to that, a little housekeeping. First of all, OJ90, you know about it. You've heard about it. Good Lord. You know, you absolutely know about it. OJ90.com. Go there. Buy your tickets. Book your hotel rooms. Tell your friends. It is time to get those tickets booked. The party is coming, and you want to be prepared. You want to be ready for a very cool party. A lot of awesome stuff is is in the works, and I think you guys are going to dig it. Get there and do that. Uh, Also, secondly, we've talked about uh, the bricks are going away forever. Last chance to get the bricks. Uh, Bricks are going to be closing up in the next couple weeks. If you have not gotten your commemorative brick right there at the grounds of Camp Ojibwa, under the Collegiate Week bench, also known as the Yellow Bench, swing over to campojibwahistory.org and click on Buy My Brick. Get it in, because once they're gone this time, that's it. We're never offering them again. So, this is a last chance to leave an eternal mark on the grounds of Camp Ojibwa. Okay, that's it for housekeeping. Let's get to it without further ado. Chef Kyle and Grace on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. Young, better known as Chef Kyle, and I have been at camp for how many years have I been at camp now? This summer will be our 15th summer. 15th summer, oh yes. We started back in 19... Uh, 2002. 2002. Uh, yes, indeed. 2002, indeed. And this other lovely voice we're hearing? I am Mrs. Chef Kyle. I'm Grace Young, but many of our staff in the early years would walk around calling me Mrs. Chef Kyle. Yes. yes. Well, years ago, I got a memory upgrade and I got married. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get to it. Before 2002, before you guys are at camp, how did you come to find out about camp in the first place? Well, I had been the executive chef running all the operations for Remus Catering. Uh, pretty big deal. We did massive parties and numerous ones all over the city. Hmm. But Kirk Remus had decided he was through and he retired selling the business. 
I didn't want to stay with the new owners, so I started looking around freelancing and also was doing more in the evenings with the school system at that time, becoming an administrator. An acquaintance of mine, another chef, um, asked me to come up to help with a contract he had, which he wasn't sure he could handle on his own. Hmm. And uh, that was Camp Ojibwa. Wow. So, this was Chef Aaron Jardowski. Yeah. I came up with him the first year uh, and uh, was rather surprised to find out that almost everything that he had suggested wasn't really the case. Hmm. But um, he had brought with him a crew he had hired, which turned out not to work out very well. Yes. Luckily, we had a very good foreign staff, and I was able to replace most of the uh, most of the staff that Aaron had brought with him with uh, with uh, the foreign staff, teaching them to fill the roles. Yeah. At the end of the year, Danny asked me if I'd be interested in coming back the next year, and I said no because um, I figured it'd be better to let Aaron do this on his own. <laughs> sure. And, um, I wasn't about to poach a position from him. Sure, of course. At the end of the second year, Denny called me up and asked me if I would come back the next year to take over the kitchen myself. Mm. And I did. So you assisted Aaron for two years? No. Oh, I see. You skipped the next year. Right. Um, right, right, right. Aaron and I have very different management styles. And sure. Few other changes, so yes. Sure, uh, and it's interesting because historically speaking, at camp there have been very long-running chefs, and then a few in-betweeners. <laughs> it's kind of how it's. I mean, Katie was the chef, and uh, Otto was the baker, and then uh, here we are <laughs> in the modern day, and we have another long-running chef now. So, fifteen years in, um, and I think everyone would say it's been a pretty good thing for camp. Uh, the kitchen is run increasingly smoothly year after year, and. Uh, Chef Aaron was an interesting experiment. For anyone who was there at the time, the kids especially will remember Chef Aaron as the chef who wouldn't let you wear sandals into mess hall um, and frowned upon muscle shirts, tank tops, that sort of a thing. I think that, that point was a little more negotiable, but the sandals were a big deal. And it's that kind of a thing that makes you stick out with the kids. Like if, you, you know, if you're at an all-sports camp and you can't wear your sandals into the, into the mess hall. Uh, but that was year one, and then you took off year two and... and well, there were various seconds, you know, he needs, Kyle needs to cook under him. Being the chef, the chef at camp is one of those jobs, um, I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, it's one of the jobs that doesn't get the glory. Now the food might get the glory, whatever the meal ends up being might get the glory, but the logistics of feeding 200 to 300 campers, 100 and whatever staff, every meal every day, mm -hmm. that's the job that's never going to get the glory in a sports camp. Well, think of this. You're serving three to four hundred meals a day, seven days a week, basically, for eight weeks. That would right. be three to four hundred meals three times a day, seven days a week. Yes. See? <laughs> we right. hit four hundred on, as a count, on many meals last summer with company, uh, with prep campers. Sure. Mm -hmm. With father-son camp. So it's one of those jobs that also, as you say, you're going to need seconds. You're going to need other people working with you that make everything possible. You need to have a competent sous chef. 
you need to have competent staff. And if you don't have them readily available, you have to train them. Yeah. And we've got a big kitchen, which means it's very hard to be everywhere at once. Sure. And when we're cooking outside, that complicates matters even more. And it's not just about cooking it. It's about cooking it right, cooking it safely, and having it taste good and be hot when we're ready to serve. Right. We strive to be able to serve 400 people in 30 minutes, meaning everything has to be ready. And the first serving should be as good as the last, or the last serving should be as good as the first serving. Yeah. That can be interesting. Yeah, and, and to not run out of food. And not That's run certainly out of food. a key as well. Mm-hmm. And as importantly, not to have leftovers. Mm-hmm. It's a fine line that my husband has to calculate. Sure how everyone gets what they want, and yet we're not throwing away food. Right. And he does it really well. Every year it gets better and better. Yeah, it's easy to not run out of food if you just make 5,000 pounds of spaghetti. I mean, you're not going to run out. (laughs) When we first took over the kitchen there, one of the things we were totally missing was, well, besides virtually all of our pots and pans had disappeared, Hmm. Uh, most of the small wares were gone, there also was no data, no Hmm. information. That's why when I mentioned that um, that book we put together, right? That with that you can basically compute out how much you need to produce for every single meal. So it's a pretty pretty big deal. Nice. And it took quite a bit of time, and that's still something we fine tune. Yeah, and it, you know that's the thing. That's one of those tools. In the big picture of camp, if the day comes that you guys are no longer at camp. Either you're going to leave to camp or camp's going to buy from you. What are, I mean, that's just one of those things. Like, it's necessary. It's important to the job. We it's have the kind paperwork. Of roll on, right? We have paperwork to give to camp. Okay. When we arrived, there was no paperwork for the kitchen yeah. at all. That's really shocking. Denny would type up a menu, but it was very basic. Right. And not always totally accurate. And there was no computer right. in the kitchen. Mm. And, and, and now there's both. Yeah. It's, I mean, it really it speaks to a modernization of a piece of camp that needed to be modernized. Mm-hmm. Um, camp has had this lovely luxury of being very old-fashioned in a very new-fashioned world. And we all love that. It's one of the things we really find charming about camp. I mean, for years, my first five or six years, I had no cell phone service. I just gotten a cell phone my first year I went up there. I got up there, I was like, oh, okay. And, but it, it came to be kind of nice. It came to be joyous. I didn't have to return anyone's calls. I didn't have to worry about it all summer. It just was what it was. And eventually, of course, that, that went away. But there are charms to the fact that we still run the business like an old-fashioned business. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of how they run the office is much more personal and hands-on than most modern businesses. That said, this is an area where you can see that a camp can succeed by having a little more modernization by just yes. putting a few plans in place that you can go back to and count on and use a computer and whatever and use the money efficiently for the food we buy right mm. uh, often the things that people think are the cheapest are far from it mm. convenience style foods are very expensive mm. it's much cheaper you get to buy the uh, fresher the raw products and do it from scratch yeah 
what we have to do is balance that between time utilization and storage capacity. Our kitchen, we're not, we don't store product well. We get product in, we make something with it, and it goes out quickly. Sure. We want a very fast turnaround on virtually everything. But uh, we have seen a lot of very significant changes in the kitchen in the past few years. A lot of modernization with equipment and facilities. <clears throat> it's making us more effective in what yeah. we do. And it also means we can do our job with less waste and uh, better return on the cost. Right. Right. Ultimately, all that stuff serves. I, I think some people are often surprised to hear that the food is the most expensive thing at camp. But of course it is. As you just said, you know, mm -hmm. we're serving 20 meals a week times 400 people times eight weeks. You know, <laughs> it's going to add up. It's going to be the thing. And so uh, the way that, you know, I think you guys have made concerted steps, not just in that way, but even in dealing with the international staff. Great example. So before your time. Oftentimes, you know, I mean, the kitchen staff used to be just college girls who came college up. College boys. College boys who came up. Didn't know what they were getting into. Didn't know they were coming to work a kitchen job. Thought they were coming to work a summer camp job. Things like that. So then that rotated into the first sets of the international staff coming over. And even it, even early on with that, even up to just a few years ago, they weren't getting as informed of certain things, whether it was hours worked or tasks specific to the job or whatever. But now it seems like both on our end in working to get repeat people back and, get, and finding better ways to choose who we hire. And also on the end of the companies that help us with, whether it's CCUSA or uh, Camp America, that they're also providing more, uh, there's less surprises, I guess, is it, all along mm -hmm. the way. And so whether so starting from the hiring process, going all the way through to the working in the kitchen with you guys on a meal-to-meal on -meal basis, I think that um, we have a much better system. And I think that that shows in the past two or three years of having such great kitchen staffs and no no major problems, no giant walkouts, mm -hmm. <laughs> things like that. It's really been a change. Well, that was something planned long before they ever got there. Sure. Thing about that incident. The the college boys and girls, young women, young men that we've been getting the last few years, have such integrity, such team spirit. Mm -hmm. They. Uh, love the their group they help each other out that makes all the difference in the world i mean mm -hmm. we want to rule with compassion we want to rule with love we want to sure. rule with enthusiasm the hardest thing to do is to have to rule with fear and when sure. people are uncooperative you are as a manager reduced to ruling with fear, and that's just the worst, most uncomfortable thing to have to do. Yeah. But the meals have to be done, it all has to be done properly. And we're just happy to say that we can work with, with joy, we can lead with joy. I think that's true, most of the time. I mean, you know, there's always the six week meal where we're all <laughs> haven't slept for a week. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, do, we do run out of food, whether it's anybody's fault or not. It just is, you know, there's always those things. But in general, the whole system. There will always be well. things that happen. Of course. It's how course. we deal with those things that's important. Mm -hmm. When the power is out. When Great the, example. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. But we managed to carry on. Yeah. 
where we learn as we go, we see what's wrong, and everybody enters into it with a spirit of moving towards a given end, uh, to accomplish what we're there for, to have a good time, let's not waste time with recriminations, right. and fault-finding, let's, let's make what we can of this. Right. And uh, I see a lot of that. That's one of the things I most love about Ojibwa. The people who come there, the idea is treat them well, treat everyone well, treat each other well. And as such, people tend to be, to respond well to this. Mm. If you do what you know you should be doing, if they, then they're more likely to do it too. If you treat people as you would wish to be treated, and uh, we do that. The atmosphere allows one to become one's best self. Mm. That's very well put. And I think that starts at the top. Uh, we've already mentioned him, but tell me a little bit about meeting and now getting to know and work with Denny Rose. <laughs> it's, all, it's all about Denny. Just absolutely adore him. Mm. Just the most charismatic, amazing person that always has the right word in the right place. I don't know how he comes up with it, no matter... Whom he's dealing with. I don't know how to phrase this. I would trust him implicitly, but I'd never really trust him because I'm always waiting for he's going to do something. <laughs> <laughs> he's a mischievous fellow. Yes, that's certainly true. And, um, but he is definitely, definitely a person of character and quality. Mm. And um, he's generous to a fault. He usually has thought of what you haven't yet. Yes. I think that's the top of his strong suits right there, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that he'll, think, he'll have thought of what you haven't thought of yet. And carries on everything with a passion, positive and negative. I mean, if there's a thing he doesn't like, he is, he is oh. as passionate about letting you know as mm -hmm. the things he does. You mm -hmm. know? And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. Um, oftentimes, it's for the betterment of everything. You know, He will recall oftentimes to me and if he were here he would have already brought it up the story about the the chicken nuggets that were slightly different yes mm -hmm. yes <laughs> can, you, can you fill me in on what the details were I'm, i i just vaguely kind of know it all right we had done a tasting and selected the chicken nugget we were going to serve and we'd serve these with to good effect for a couple of years and each different variety of chicken nugget has a four digit number Mm -hmm. And okay. we knew our four-digit number. It was the highest quality one that Breakbush makes. Okay. And that's what we used, and we used for some years. And we were the only ones who really used it in northern Wisconsin because it is of higher quality and costs somewhat more than gotcha. the others. Well, they did a change in their processing and changed the numbers. Ah. So they sent us their next quality under the same nomenclature. I got you. So we thought we were ordering the same thing. They had changed on the back end, and we were actually getting the second grade. Right. Very clear. Gotcha. Denny knew it instantly. <laughs> Who was the only person on that campus of almost 400 people, all those counselors, all those kids, all of us who would put a chicken nugget in our mouth. Denny put one in his mouth, and he went, Ugh, this isn't right. Right. It wasn't, he didn't see a box, he didn't see a weird order, it was, he put it, he knew from the taste of a chicken nugget. 
Right. That there had been a, a change, and and not for the better. No. For whatever reason. And we fumbled around with, oh well, Daddy, I, well, 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 but it's the same as it's always. Been. No, it's not. <laughs> but we ordered it. It's the. They kept the Look box. at it, the taste it. The box was exactly the same as what we Look at done. this, taste and this. All breakbush boxes look the same. Right, of course. It's just the nomenclature. But it he was took, right. Yes, he was. It took some time to get it straightened out, but literally we Mr. Breakbush himself got involved, personally. <laughs> and Mr. Breakbush has stopped by camp on a pretty regular basis. Nice. We are a big user of their products, and uh, they are very cognizant of keeping us happy. Mm. Uh, very, uh, very, very forward about that. Um, well, that touches on something I would like to talk about, and that is that uh, starting all the way with back with Al... Al Schwartz had a way of doing business with vendors that the average person did not. And whether that was, he's got to go into town and pick up such and such, send, a, send six cupcakes with him, send a, send a pie in with him, send whatever, invite him out for dinner. Um, and I think that we see that continuing on. And yes. tell me a little bit about how, how you guys, and also with Denny, uh, sort of interact with our vendors. We are unlike most of the uh, customers our vendors deal with. Most of them, the vendors say they want to know how cheap they can get something for. Mm. With us, we go in starting with what's, what do we want, what's the best quality, what quality do we want, and then what's the best price we can get it for. Also, how reliable is said vendor and will mm. they carry through and do what we ask them to. Now, chicken nuggets are not something I normally ate or eat <laughs> sure. to this day, but I do understand food relatively well. Right. And I know very much the difference about a cut of meat, the quality of a cut, and so forth, and what it should be costing. So if I order something and it comes in and it's not right, I expect our vendors to make it right. Mm. They know I'm not going to start chopping around on them, if you give me a, if I tell you this is what I want, this is the quality I want, and you tell me this is the price that you can sell it to me for, I will look at anyone else I've sent out that, um, that uh, specification to. But once I've settled on you as being our purveyor, I'm not going to then shop around, take your price, and try to get somebody to undercut it. Right. We are very, very good customers, all of our, all of our, uh, and we treat all our um, vendor representatives and their truck drivers with respect because that's what we do at camp. We're kind and we're respectful. So the truck drivers like us a lot. They're busy, they're on their route, but if they need a cup of coffee, right? if they want a glass of water, if, if they're there around breakfast, they can have breakfast, you know? The, laun the laundry people actually love us. Hmm. You know, they're not used to being treated well, I don't think. But yeah. And it seems so simple, right? Like, it is simple. Why would it be hard if you run any type of a kitchen to offer a vendor a cup of coffee? Right. Mm -hmm. Someone who's driving the truck and probably unloading half of it. I mean, maybe we help, but probably doing a lot of physical labor for you. Mm -hmm. It right. seems so simple, but it, it speaks to a philosophy that, like you said... 
at camp, you're the best person you can be, and you inspire other people to be the best person they can be. And this comes mm-hmm. down from Denny, which I guess came down from Al, but for mm-hmm. us, it's all Denny. We treat people with respect. Yeah. And we, we're very, we run a more professional kitchen than most of the restaurants. Mm. When they come in and they know, and the, the purveyors know it. They know what's expected of them. We have very clear expectations. When we order something, we tell them precisely what we want, how much of it we want, and when it needs to be there. We expect them to be as forthright with us. Uh, We've got an excellent uh, record of paying on time, much better than most. So... And I I don't know if the general public understands, like, how many, how many trucks a week pull into Camp Ojibwe and deliver? How many, I mean, I know the vendor list must be a dozen at least, right? Well, you're going to have first, our laundry service is going to be there at least three days, three times a week, four times a week. Uh, We're going to have Coca-Cola coming here regularly, usually once every couple of weeks, but they have those big rigs, which are really quite something. Generally, it's our day-to-day vendors, and that we're going to see Reinhardt in uh, probably twice a week. We're going to see Cisco in uh, probably twice a week, and we're going to see Upper Lakes in there three times a week. Mm. They provide our dairy also now. So those are our big vendors. Plus, then we have uh, Diamnia, which will be in once a week. Sure, of course. The pizza people, the bread man. The bread bread man, man. he's pretty regular, right? uh, Three Mm -hmm. times a week. Um... We'll also have the beverage, the beverage hot service. tea. They'll be in at least once a week. Candy bars. Oh yes, and of course holiday, and holiday will usually be in twice a week. Yeah, and so you think about that, and and again, this just speaks to the logistics. But I, I part of what I want to talk about here is to sort of let the pe- like help the people understand a little bit of what this is like. Why the kitchen is an unsung hero at camp. What are some of the things that go on there? Just logistically scheduling all of those trucks and making sure you're not doing it in the middle of a game, (laughs) basically, you know. Or at a mealtime where we're in service. Right. Making sure there's not 200 kids in front of the office at the moment that a a big rig needs to Mm -hmm. turn around. That kind of stuff is, you know, it's all part of the puzzle. And And we do not have a huge walk-in, so we can't take all the food at once. So the hamburgers that we're going to serve on Thursday, afternoon cookouts, mm-hmm. they're going to arrive, let's say, on Wednesday because we don't have a space in one of our freezers for them. Right. So it's constantly gauging what are we cooking, what are we cooking in, and not only that, but what freezer space does it open up yeah. and make available we are making about 68,000 meals during one session. Everything that we serve, every candy bar, every soda, every bottled water, every hamburger, and every bun. All the fruit, the breakfast cereal. If you want to have brown sugar, we have to order. If you want to have creamer, we have to order. Everything has to be ordered and be there on time in the right quantity when we need to use it. If we are using fresh produce, it has to be picked up. If we are using any sort of bakery good, it has to be bought in and it has to be fresh. We don't have storage capacity there. 
to bring in large quantities of food ahead. So it's a constant cycle of rotation. Last summer, Kyle and I would arrive at Triggs at downtown Eagle River, arrive at 5.45 to 6 o'clock at the latest. 5.45 and usually leaving by 6.15. And it always takes a couple of weeks at the beginning of the year to train them to move fast when we're there because we've mm -hmm. got to get back to the kitchen and get the whole checkout thing um, expedited mm -hmm. and get the bakery in order. Um, there's a lot of boys that have birthdays at camp. Sure. And we can't mess that up. I mean, a kid's birthday is his birthday. That is correct. Giving a kid a cake the next day is not acceptable. So mm -hmm. we have to keep on our toes about where the birthdays are. And that goes down from Rachel knowing the birthdays to giving me a list, my giving Kyle a list, Kyle giving Triggs Bakery a list, and everybody down the line mm -hmm. is reminding and nobody can make a mistake. Right. Trig's not forgetting. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely gone in and picked up dozens of late cakes because oh, they, yes. they got skipped in the morning, so yes. I had to go back at noon and get it. Of yes, course. so so have I. The, the logistics are, are mind-blowing. But on top of all that, on top of the 68,000, on top of the storage space, there's a second level that we haven't even talked about, and that is a whole area of special needs oh, when it yes. comes to dietary things. I mean, personally, I... I have eaten for vegetarian for many years at camp. I'm sort of on the fence these days, but uh, for many years, vegetarian at camp. Um, and but, you've always been an easy one, actually. Right, but I was going to say, starting a vegetarian is somewhat relatively easy compared to some of the challenges you have with kids and their allergies. Um, you know, speak to that a little bit about what that's like. What What is that? How, first of all, how do we handle it? When a, well, it started, I'm going to say about 10 years ago. We had a potential new camper whose father was a doctor and this child this boy was allergic to milk and he'd had the anaphylactic shock and and it was serious yeah. and so the first time he met chef Kyle and me chef looked at him and said what can I do to help you and this child turned his head up to Kyle and said, don't let me die. Wow. And to hear that come out of a child's mouth, we were dedicated, but that was just so moving. This is serious stuff. And milk is in everything. everything. Right. Absolutely. So we started with that, with him. And I am humbly proud to say we never harmed him. We never made a mistake. He never got sick. He never had a reaction. And it's all about paying attention. At this point, every single product that comes into camp, we cut the label off the box. Whether it's a big cardboard box, it's, it's a little piece of paper that has the ingredients, and that goes in a plastic sleeve and a giant notebook. Mm. And Kyle, I, Rachel, anybody at any time, if in our brains we forget, oh, do the breadsticks have milk in them? Right. Even though we know they don't, you know, we can always double check because we cannot guess that our memories are right all the time. There are two things we need to deal with. One, we need to know each of the campers 
who has a food sensitivity of some sort. And we also include food preferences to a degree in that. Sure. Those student, those uh, campers, uh, we look at the, the information on them and prepare a sheet which tells us, okay, this is category, this category, and this category for each meal. Who gets what? Who can't have what? Mm-hmm. We keep that posted in several places in the kitchen, and I have it back at my desk. And every meal, we look over this to make sure we're going to be able to feed these people and what we're going to be able to feed them. So knowing what we can feed to the campers is part of it. The second part is, as my wife was was mentioning, is knowing what's in everything we serve. Mm-hmm. And it's not just cutting the labels off, which is a big part of it, but also sometimes we need to go a step further. Was it processed in a plant which does such uh-huh. and such? Sure. Or is there a chance of transmission within the kitchen? For instance, if somebody is uh, highly allergic to eggs, well, is it going to be safe to cook something on our griddle? Mm. We do eggs on those in the morning, even though it's been cleaned. So there's a lot of points there to be considered. Also, hidden ingredients. And that's a big one, for instance, with those uh, campers we had who had fish allergies. Barbecue sauce. Barbecue sauce doesn't say it contains fish, but it does say it contains natural flavorings. Mm. You need to research that because one of the natural flavorings frequently used in barbecue sauce is anchovy paste. And it does not have to be specified. It can just be listed as natural ingredients yeah. or natural flavors. Yeah. When in doubt, leave it out. When mm. in doubt, if, you, if we don't know for sure, we tell a child not to eat it and we'll give them something better. But it's sneaky little things like sauces. Mm-hmm. Sneaky little things is a big part of it. Yeah, it's a it, it's interesting, and I mean, obviously, society wise, you know, the world is changing. Allergies are becoming more prevalent. Whether it's we're diagnosing them better, or they're just more of them, who knows? That's not important. But the fact of the matter is, more kids are having challenges, and at the end of the day, it's not our job to figure out why. It's our job to make sure they're taken care of. And I think that we do it at an exceptional level. I think there's no camp doing it better, certainly. I doubt there's any other camps really doing it as well as we do. To, uh, I mean, last year alone, the special kids were probably 20? 30, oh, 30 in the second session. So there you go. So 30, 10% of the population is dealing with something. And you're having to make sure, and, and not all the same thing. So it's not like, okay, well, those 30 can all have the same thing. No, it's of those 30, three of them can have one thing, one has another. Um, and to be able to manipulate that on top of all the other logistics we already covered, it's pretty impressive. So It's a real challenge um, to make a pizza for a child who is dairy-free and gluten-free. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> right. But it can be done. And a, most of it starts with communication with the parents, with the mother. Sure. Mm-hmm. And Rachel always has pre-camp good communication with the mother and then she will send the email to me, and I'll talk to the mother, you know, through emails. And most of these mothers will bring up their favorite substitute items mm. that they have learned the kids will eat. Um, and then we, we build on that. And the mothers know they can always email me at camp right. with questions. I think that's a big part of it. It just gets down to communication, you mm-hmm. know. The same way you would with uh, with the infirmary. If your kid 
needed to take a certain kind of medication or whatever, you would, you would have conversations with them. You wouldn't just be like, here, have fun. Same thing. And I think you guys do a great job of providing that. I think Camp Ojibwa does a great job of providing that. And I think the parents appreciate that in a way that maybe we don't get told all the time. That, you know, I think there are parents who are happy to send their kid back to us because they know they were properly taken yes, care of. Yes, I think no it's words. very hard for a mother to let go that first year. Yeah, especially yeah. some of the more extreme cases we've seen. I mean, we've had kids that are just, you know, like you said, literally just allergic to everything. Like, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, egg allergies. Egg is another one of those ingredients. There was a family of boys that were allergic to eggs. And uh, we've had allergies to, of course, nuts, to eggs, to dairy, to oats, to wheat, to rice, to, I mean... And you can't get it confused. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. Right. Well, you mentioned nuts. We actually, in your time at camp, we've gone nut free. Mm-hmm. Um, well, which was, you know, food wise. Y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely plenty of the nuts. First, the first year we got there, there was a jar of peanut butter on each table. Absolutely. Of course. Mm-hmm. The old peanut butter and jelly is the substitute for anything. Right. <laughs> That's what Denny used to say. That's what the vegetarians could eat peanut butter and Absolutely. jelly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Then the next year, there were individual packets of peanut butter on the tables. Then the next year, the individual packets of peanut butter were off the tables, but on the back buffet line. And then the next year, yeah. there was no peanut butter, and now there is soy butter, mm-hmm. and the brands have improved over the years. Right. And now they're absolutely wow. we're nut free. That first year, seed soy, free. whatever that brand was, that first year. Oh, you're I right. Mean, it was, and it was that green color that's mm-hmm. kind of like mold, but also kind of like snot. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it, it didn't. Was, <laughs> sort of the military OD. <laughs> right. It had a terrible right. mouth feel. Yes, it really. I mean, it, and and to be fair, we were testing things out and figuring out, and the newest stuff that that it amazes. Gets better every yeah, year. it's pretty pretty good. Um, but how did that affect the kitchen otherwise? I mean, I know obviously the candy bars were the big spot. Um, the candy is a big place to go nut-free. But in general, were there a lot of other big changes in the kitchen for that? Or Well, bread, we make sure mm. that the common bread we buy does not have egg or milk in it. Oh. Which yes, is not hard is, to that, find, but you have to. As for going nut-free in the kitchen, many most recipes we can pretty well avoid using nuts in them without too much loss. Uh, there's a few things, of course, which we can't do. Right. Um, and uh, also sesame, which is one which we mm. haven't been able to use, has made it very difficult to do certain items. Sesame oil being a big component in virtually all Oriental cooking. Sure. We've been able to adapt. It's just we have to be careful on things. At, at post-camp, we're occasionally irked by it. It's right. Because we're trying to be more creative. Right. The menu is a little more exotic at post camp for yes. those of you who have never been. It, it's yes, you know, but oh, yes. but the important thing is when those parents with their families come up, you know, they're little girls and boys, they know they're safe to bring their family there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's more important. So that's the job. The job is the hardest part, that's what you guys do. Now well, it never stops. When you're at camp and you're not working. Which is, you know, a few minutes each week. Uh, what else do you do when you're at camp? What else do you do to pass the time? Watch the food channel. Uh, what I should say is, what do you enjoy doing at camp? What do you love when you have a little free time at camp to enjoy? I 
do enjoy fishing occasionally, watching the Food Channel. Sure, of course. Um, sleeping, a nap. Sleeping is always a good idea. I think we've learned here that these guys need some more time off. <laughs> but there is no such thing, and, and, and you know that. If you're in this business, you know that. You can't, ex- can't expect it to be different or you're never going to be you're happy. You're always planning at least one meal ahead. And we're very happy. So we're you're, extremely happy. By the time people are eating breakfast, I'm, planning, I'm working on dinner. And uh, you can't let that slip. People think it's just you walk in an hour ahead of time and you put it together. It doesn't work that way. Right. Right. And, and people don't understand that there are people built like this. Like, I, I also like to, I enjoy being very busy all summer long. Mm-hmm. I don't need a ton of downtime to have enjoyed my summer. Mm-hmm. Part of it is the accomplishment of doing the things that are my job. And uh, not everyone's built that way. But when you are built that way, you totally understand. Like, that's... Getting to do that thing and enjoy it, but then do it in this amazing place. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Yes, that's what the summer is for us. I mean, there is no other summer. It, it, it is the, the kitchen. We work with wonderful people. We have a wonderful staff, and we've got... The kids are wonderful. And we have great support. I, when people ask me about camp, I say, as with any job, it should be a good day's work for a good day's pay. And a lot of people don't get that these days. Sure. All right? What we say is, it's a great day's work with a great day's pay, and you're constantly thanked. Mm. It's good to feel appreciated. Yeah. And the appreciation never stops. So that's a lot. Most people, again, don't get that for sure. That's true. That's true. And how many times a day will a kid thank you? I mean, let alone like Denny or someone you're working with, but the kids will go out of their way to say thank you. I mean, standing up there waiting the buffet line and I'm putting nuggets on someone's plate and the kid's like, thank you. And I'm like, you, get out of here, you. You're great. Get out of here. Because <laughs> it's a, you know. Right. It's, it's a whole it's, it's a thrill. environment. Yeah. You'll hear some little kids nudge, nudge a kid and say, you've got to get that cake. That cake's really good today. We just smile. We're in heaven. It's like the whole audience applauded. Yeah. That, that's everything. If, if they like it, we are so thrilled. We can't stand ourselves, you know? And uh, rib day. Mm. People far and wide love your ribs. Mm-hmm. They do, really. Yeah. We actually, when you talk about uh, the relationship we have with our purveyors, one of the things we do is we always cook at least one extra rack, which we take in to our purveyors in town. Mm, nice. And as a result, when we asked for, well, when Denny wants to do his steak cookout, and he wants ribeyes, well, guess what? He talked to Trace and, well, what do you know? The meat, the meat uh, managers just put ribeye on special this week. <laughs> it all, it's funny how it all works like that. Mm-hmm. The, um... The gentleman at the garage, I don't remember his name, but you, you know the auto repair shop we always go to? Sure. All right? Don, I think. Don, thank you. Don. You know, and I've gone in there a number of times, and he's talked me through things and also worked on my car, but just been an all-around great guy because of Denny. Well, and also because of Denny, I was alone because you were too busy doing something else. I brought him in his rack of ribs. The smile on that man's face. He was getting a jib of ribs and... He was thrilled to death. Nice. 
before we wrap up, let's get to what people really want to know. Tell us how you two met. Ah. Well, now, that's an interesting story. I'd just come back from the First Desert War, and uh, I decided it was time to meet somebody. Uh, I was down in Washington, D.C. area visiting my younger brother, mm. and he said, there's someone you really need to meet. She, in the, in the business, she knows about you. So, okay. It turns out uh, this was his dancing partner at a country and western dancing uh, bar. Of course. <laughs> this was my lovely wife. We hit it off rather well, I think, and uh, asked her if I could correspond with her. She agreed. We corresponded back and forth some. She came out here. I went out there. She came here finally, and I took her to a big chef's party. Mm. And uh, as we were there, they uh, had this silent, or they have these uh, door prizes you win. They called her name, and she came up, and she got this big box, and the guy's telling her to open it up. So she opens up, and then there's a smaller box, and then that's a smaller box, and a smaller box, and a smaller box, and this very small little intricate box, and she opens up. And when she does this, uh, the announcer, who's a professional wrestling announcer, asks her, and Kyle asks, will you marry him? <laughs> wow. She said yes. <laughs> yes, I, I got engaged in front of 800 chefs. No, yes. <laughs> well, that, that's amazing. Yes. Now, what parts of the story did he forget? <laughs> All of the good stuff. That, that was very good. That well, thank was, you. That, that was very good. From my point of view... Um, I was a country western dancer, and we were nightclubbers, and we just spent every waking hour except for work there. You know, we left work, and we hit the club at 7, and we stayed till it was closed every night. And when you live a nightclub life, as a woman, in my opinion, you have to decide how you're going to act. And you have to decide if you're going to be a slut or you're going to be an ice queen. So I chose to be an ice queen. Fair enough. And so I had rules, which meant that it was a, this was a huge place, that all the men out in the audience, right, they come down and they want to slow dance with you. Mm. You know? It's called the belt buckle rub. No, no, no. I would never dance a slow dance with a man I had not done a two-step or a waltz. I see. So they had to earn their way into the belt buckle rub. Absolutely. Okay, fair enough. That's a good rule. You have to actually be able to dance. So one one night, my friend Clay, we were part of this group. I wasn't so much his partner as I danced with him every night, but we all danced with each other. Gotcha. We were the dedicated dancers. And so Clay said, my brother is here. Well, that's what opened the door. Hmm. So I went up and sat and chat with Clay and his brother, Kyle, um, who was trying very hard to be charming and w- and was succeeding. Okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know where that was going. <laughs> it's my roguish good looks. <laughs> and, uh, and he wasn't a dancer, but I broke my rule. because A slow dance came on, and he asked me to dance, and it was appropriate. I was protected by his brother. Sure. And so uh, he laid it on thick. He was very charming. He asked me... Um, tell me three things about you. <laughs> no. And um, and then 
I'll tell you three things about me. And so... That's a good, that's a good line. I like that. Was, it, 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 was, it was a good line. And he was nice and cute and handsome, and he was Clay's brother. So then we went back up and sat at the table, and as the night was over, he said, may I write to you? And that, in these times, was very 19th century, I thought. Sure, yeah. You know? And so I gave him my address. It wasn't the, I mean, it was just lovely. And so we wrote to each other. This was in December. And he came back in April. And somehow between December and April, even though we hadn't seen each other, we had covered that territory as if he'd been here. Because once we saw each other again, the click was there. It had been the first night, but that was the first night. The click was there, and we were just meant to be. And we had a long-distance relationship from Wisconsin to Washington, D.C. for years and years. Hmm. And af Well, actually, after about three or four years, We did get engaged because it, it seemed ridiculous to be a boyfriend and girlfriend. Sure. You know? Fair enough. Yeah. So, right, we sealed the deal even, even though we traveled back and forth. So my first time coming to camp, we were married, of course, for maybe three or four years, hmm. something like that. But I was there part-time my first year at camp. And I had driven with two dogs. I had driven from Washington, D.C., so it was a long, a, <laughs> a long haul. It's a long haul, yeah. A long haul. And you all know that feeling of, you know, and, the, and there wasn't GPS then on the phones. Mm. You had to use a map. Whew. And I got there, and I looked around, and it was beautiful. But it was happy. Mm. It was happy. I'd never seen so many people so casually, genuinely happy. And then Denny came out. <laughs> and he was all open arms and welcome and handed us like a million dollars to go out to some stag restaurant for dinner. And I was totally overwhelmed. Yeah. And I fell in love. Hmm. And I didn't know what to do with myself. So I started washing dishes. No more thank you, thank you. But, you know, I started washing dishes and looking around and doing things. And it had such spirit. And as I came back, the ne you know, each time I came back, each summer I come back, it's like Brigadoon. Hmm. It just, that empty land is transformed by years and years and years of love for all those boys that have been there. And camp is now, camp is now the heart of our life. It's the heartbeat of our life. We live here, and he does his teaching here, but 
Camp is the heartbeat of our life. Well, I was going to say, one thing I always, I sort of wrap up with everyone is I always ask, now that you're a grown-up, is usually how I lead in, but we're all still there, so it's not about your years past camp, but how has your time at Camp Ojibwe affected your life? It's become our life. It's been a wonderfully stabilizing influence. I find a lot of things that I missed growing up at camp. And it's one of the places where I truly feel appreciated and I'm doing something. Even though we're nine months here and three months there? We're three, nine months waiting to go there. Right. Yeah. Sure. And we now, we now spend three months there. Those three months are more important. Mm. And even when I leave, the first thing I'm thinking about when I get back here is what can I do now for next year? What do I need to make changes? Getting my orders together, figuring out my... The transition you know, is... Really hard. Some years harder than others. Last year it was very hard. Because when we come home, you know, we're still there. And we're supposed to be here. We're supposed to be thinking about being here. But everything in our minds is revolving around camp. And I, I, we now know what we first saw on the last day of camp, those first few years, when little tiny boys were crying and hugging each other. <laughs> you know, little tiny kids in cabin one and two sobbing and holding each other. And uh, we get it. <laughs> we get it. Last but not least, Chef Kyle. Chef to the All-Stars at Camp Ojibwe, whether it be BPS, post-camp, or camp. Uh, many young boys and many men now know you, um, but very few know that your real name is Mark. And maybe many of them will learn it right here on the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast. Uh, so how did Chef Kyle come to be? I first learned to cook in France, in Paris. The chef had somebody named Mark in the kitchen, so when I arrived, there was no way he was going to have to say this Mark or that Mark. And the only Scottish name that sprang to his mind was Kyle. So he dubbed me Kyle as a nickname, and I've had it for 50 years, so I guess it's going to, going to last. That's fantastic. <laughs> it may stick. <laughs> it, might, it might just be the one that sticks. Well, this has been amazing, guys. Thank you so much. This has been incredible. And uh, did we miss anything? Can no, we, we just missed camp. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a fine note to end it on. Thank you very much. Okay, there it is. Another one in the books. Uh, the great mystery of Chef Kyle, Mark, uh, is finally solved. So you heard it here first. The official explanation those guys were a lot of fun. I actually went up to their home in Milwaukee, and their home is on the National Register of Historic Places. It's very cool. It's, you know, you don't expect to go to someone's house and have their house be a nationally recognized historic spot. So that was super cool. And uh, and then when I got there, they were making lunch. It was awesome. So we had a great time. It was awesome to visit with them. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Stay tuned. Uh, more stuff to come as we get closer to OJ90 and, of course, get closer to our 100th episode. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. 
Email me at Christopher at CampoJibbaHistory.org or, of course, just swing by the websites. More, more updates constantly. In fact, I just put up the 1973 plaques because they had been missing. So swing by the website and check that out. You could be there all day. I won't, though, because I'll be outside having a cigar. <laughs>